Welcome to the HVACR Radio Podcast. Ulysses and I are on our own tonight, talking with Rick Chabot from Isolink about AC and refrigeration system lubrication. Good evening, Rick. Could you start off tonight's podcast by telling us why ACR lubricants have become such a critical topic? Uh, man, in every segment of refrigeration, the, the lubrication side of things are changing quite a bit. And the main reason why is there's now starting to be a rather big awareness. I think a lot of people are realizing that the things that were published in the 70s, 80s, and 90s no longer really apply to today. And a lot of the engineering firms or big-name engineers, if you will, these guys are in their 60s and 70s and above, I'll be honest with you, many conversations that I've had with people of pretty notable stature and name uh, are still using that type of information. Like, you know, you can't mix oils and you can't do this and, and you know, and, 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 or, you know, OEM is the only way to go. And, and, and a lot of that stems from many decades ago where the OEMs were very strong arming the industry to where you, know, you couldn't use anything other than that, or they would immediately void the work or they would scare people that, there'd be such a massive incompatibility issue that you basically they'd blow up their compressor and not be able to operate their system. And when I got started in this back in 2012, one of the things, and I started as a generalist with ISO, I was doing, we got, the ISO has multiple categories and I was just doing them all in a small region, but somehow kind of gravitated towards the refrigeration side and, and seemed to be doing well with the contacts in that industry. So it, it developed into, creating specialty segments and refrigeration was the first specialty segment. So I realized you guys were just kind of not really got good information. So I call it an awareness campaign. I just basically put together some PowerPoints and some data points and, and related it to refrigeration systems overall, more so than just how lubrication is because it seems to be so focused on just the OEM specs and the compressor that nobody was paying attention to the rest of the system being a closed loop circuit and how it's affected by a lubricant. And there's many more things to consider just than rotating the compressor. So in in, in ammonia, there's five major base stocks that people are using. You know, they're using naphthenic mineral, paraffinic mineral, uh, hydro-treated or hydro-cracked minerals, uh, and then two synthetics, uh, PAO, polyalpha olefin, ammonia has the alpha benzene. And that creates a lot of conflict there. And then you go into the commercial industrial side for the Freons, and that's just an absolute mess because after the Montreal Protocol, where they're really getting rid of the HCFCs and going to HCFCs, it was just a huge cluster, not only in the refrigerant blends, but what type of lubricant that's going to work best with those based on miscibility and and solubility and how these things may or may not travel throughout the system or how it may or may not separate. Um, And and then of course they made it even worse in more recent years with HFOs and TFOs and then blending those with HFCs. So uh, a big thing that's been happening and you guys please chime in at any point in time, because I'm kind of just pulling as I go. One of the things that became very apparent was these R22 conversions, right? You know, everybody was trying to hit the 2020 mark. America was really pushing it. 
you know, you have the uh, the Obama administration and their their you know green energy and, and climate change, and then so people are looking at ozone depletion, global warming potentials, and not only were the natural refrigerant societies looking heavily at this, but the Department of Homeland Security is looking very heavily at it too, right? So caused a lot of interest there why DHS would be really heavily focused into looking at um, refrigerants and what people are doing with them. So for the servicers, man, this just made a huge issue because, uh, you know, they, they had, uh, you know, MO99ICM came out and, you know, Honeywell has their stuff, DuPont has theirs, Keymores has theirs, National Refrigerants has something. Everybody has a little something and they're adding to the mix. On top of that, the current service refrigerants were going through composition changes within their own blends. So even your R400s, your R500s, they had the same R code. However, the percentage of which mixture of refrigerants had been changing. So lubrication, lubricant return, foaming, miscibility, maintaining temperature, getting stuff out of any flooded coils, you know, the chillers are becoming a major thing. And then you add York and this guy and that guy, their own type of chiller designs. Frick had systems they put out in the mid-90s that were designed to be both for R22 and for ammonia, and they had all types of separator sizing issues, and that in itself was causing foamid or foaming or, or rapid escape velocity of the refrigerant and the oil, all types of things. So long story short, we started taking a look at why all this was that crazy. So first thing was <clears throat> in R22 conversions where these guys are just doing a drop-in and these companies are telling the servicers and the end users, you drop this uh, refrigerant in, you take out your R22, drop this other one, you don't have to change anything. You don't have to change oil. So if you have existing mineral or alpha benzene or polyester if it's a Carlisle application or some other applications that were running R22, even some filter applications running a PLE with R22, you, know, you just keep what you got. No need to change. Well, very wrong. Uh, some capital equipment needed to be changed. Gaskets, seals, elastomeric material needed to be changed. Uh, molecular weight was different. Superheat was different. Glide was different. Uh, many things were completely different. And then these guys are, are, again, fighting the issue with no way to stabilize the system, even to the point of having issues with, with, just, with just getting normal defrost regulation. So yeah. stuff was all over the place. I think that was where yeah. where I started to get interested in lubrication and oils in general too is because we were getting a lot of mis not I wouldn't say it was necessarily misinformation, but it was kinda like learning on the fly and everybody was coming out with uh, you know, the the drop ins like you said or or supposed drop ins and you know, label marketing them as a drop in because that's what they you know people wanted to have something that they could essentially replace r22 with without any additional work uh, which was you know for better or worse but then we had the blends come out and they said you have to have a minimum uh, like a 90 percent oil change ratio in the system with you know going from mineral or aquabenzene to poe oil for a 400 series refrigerant and then you know, a little while later, they said, no, just kidding. You can have, uh, you know, just an additional 20% POE on top of your 
uh, current oil charge will allow compressor lubrication, admissibility, oil return, all that kind of stuff. So I think that there was some, like I said, a little bit of learning on the fly, not just from the service technician side, but all, and, and probably, I guess there's the theory and the practicality. So, you know, they're telling everybody to uh, replace all the oil in the system. And then, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's guys out there were like, well, I just put in a little bit of POE and all of a sudden it started working. And then they start, you know, looking at that in the lab and going, okay, actually that does, that does work. So I think that, 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 that is something that spurred in the industry probably a little bit more in-depth look at how lubrication is in the system and how it, how it's, you know, how it functions and how compressors and components actually do work with the oil or the oil works with those components in a, you know, one way or the other for better or for worse, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so a lot of what you said is what I, what I had heard on many different things. And some of the things that were missing was, a very few people were talking more so about how the refrigerant and lubricant was interacting rather than the design of the system and how either the capital pieces of equipment themselves or the overall circuit design of the system played a big role in what was actually going to happen with the refrigerant and the lubricant. And then uh, in some of those cases where guys dropped in a little bit of POE and all of a sudden started working. So a lot of times it would show working real quick but then after a short while, it'd go right back to foaming or not being able to return the oil. And they would find they'd have to keep adding a little more POE or maybe take a little bit more mineral out and adding a little bit more POE. And it ultimately got to that. And a lot of the systems, if it was a well-run system and it was something other than the MO99 icing on, if it was about a 70-30 mix, 70% POE minimum and mineral, then you do okay especially if it was like a DX system or a system that was more like a constant velocity circuit, uh, more towards, you know, air conditioning, comfort cooling. Sure. Uh, then there wasn't much of a problem, but when you got into flooded, flooded systems, absolutely. Yeah. We've seen that in the field, plenty of yeah. misapplication yeah. where they, Oh, we'll just go to a 400 series refrigerator on a flooded system. And all of a sudden it don't work like that. No, 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 because like in, in, in anything that's a more of a constant velocity circuit, uh, real basic refrigeration with a high pressure differential, the pure agitation and velocity keeps everything moving so you're perfectly fine. Now, in the automotive sector and in that AC sector, a mineral POE blend is actually the best option because mineral oil has a much better capability of lubricating and protecting the compressor uh, than PoE does, mainly because it's not going to become as diluted by those new HFCs and, and those blends. So you have less solution, you have almost no miscibility, so then it's just not leaving with the refrigerant out of the compressor package, as long as there's you know, good separation and you're not having escape velocity. That was interesting, because I was going to have you talk about miscibility a little bit, because I was always under the, the assumption that high miscibility was an advantage, but I can see where you're saying that uh, in certain cases for compressor lubrication, high miscibility might not actually be an advantage in that case because you're actually entrained oil into the refrigerant and then it's having to go through an oil separator or some other device to get that oil back to the compressor, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it is a big area, and miscibility and then the mechanical separation 
is becoming they're they're almost playing at odds because one's not really catching up with the other. So in, in 2017, uh, uh, we had a refrigerant manufacturer reach out to us to help out a large client that changed from R22 to RS45, which I believe is R434A. Drop in R22 refrigerant, very successful. Actually, I might add, I've seen more successful cases with RS45 and flooded systems and RS44 and DX systems than I have with any other drop-in R22 blend. It has virtually no glide and really no capital equipment change. It's just an adjustment in your uh, um, valves or your float logics or stuff like that because it has a 40% you know, larger molecular size. That has really been almost the most, I think, or the least – uh, amount of capital equipment and service or change out that's needed to happen in the middle of that particular one. Um, and, and, and I was doing something for Occidental Chemical Corporation. They had a 80, they had a 78,000 pound charge of R22. Wow. They switched out all RS45. Uh, it's a 10% uh, adjustment in weight. So they went to 85,000 pounds and it's an old mid nineties system. It's, it's been, meddled with several times. It's one of the few plants that they have in their corporation where uh, they have their own maintenance team on it. They don't really work with refrigeration contractors. And and one of the things that had been done, so it was R22. It was, you know, 70, roughly 75, 78,000 pounds, always using POE. Now, POE is okay to run with R22. It's just that uh, – R22 is highly miscible into the oil. And when we talk about miscibility, it's how much refrigerant dilutes into the oil, not the other way around. So it's refrigerant going into the oil, not oil going into the refrigerant. And this has got filters on the system. For whatever reason, someone somewhere expect an ISO 320 POE and a very particular ISO 320. So, you know, I took a real quick look at his, and I very quickly found that that particular ISO 320 that they put in there was actually specified not only by the manufacturer, but also by national refrigerants as not to be used with any HFCs. Okay, it was specifically made for R22. Now, it's not very uncommon to have a very high viscosity POE at R22 because it has such a high miscibility rate that the goal is after dilution, you still have enough working viscosity. Now, 320 is really high. Usually, I'll see a 120 or a 170, and the, and the influencer on that is whether or not it has an external oil cooler or not. So that's the only difference. Um, you know, if it didn't have an a external oil cooler, I believe they used the, uh, uh, the 120, and if it did, they used a 170, or it might be vice versa. I, I can't remember. It was, a, it was a Carlisle thing. There's not very many oil, uh, very many of those out there. But now they have a 320 in there, so... Yeah, you can use POE with R22, but it has to be, you know, the math on it has to be a little bit better. But here's the thing. They couldn't get the oil out of the flooded uh, evaporators. They had huge 15,000-gallon evaporators. Uh, they couldn't get it to the surge drums. They, they couldn't get it through the skimmer, and they couldn't get it. And, if they, and then when they did manual dump-outs and would force the stuff into the surge drum manually through adjusting the system, they couldn't even get it to pump into the compressor. They had to almost manually take it out of their surge drum and put it into their compressor. They couldn't get the pump to move it. So it's just way too thick. So 
and they had a huge history of adding tremendous amount of oil but not taking it out. So there were umpteen thousand gallons of oil flooded throughout the system that would not come back. Oh my uh, plugged up, plugged up small orifices, plugged up a lot of lines uh, in a lot of low-lying areas, and the system was not built to be readily accessible. So what they had done in some years prior is they added a valve drain on the bottom of their evaporators. Now, one of them was eight stories high, and the other one was ground level. And one's a, uh, uh, I think it was a negative 20, and that one's a, or a negative 40, and that one's a plus 20 through their chemical process. And what they would do is when the system started becoming, they just couldn't control it, couldn't get it to make capacity, they'd manually crank open the valves, and they'd let it drain until the valves started frosting over. And that's how they know they had gotten to the to the refrigerant. Now, here's the funny thing: they were getting oil to drain only because of the super high miscibility, where it was a rather homogeneous product. And then through boil off, you know, you should have you know, that difference in saturation layer. So they're getting oil, but it was a very bad way of doing it. So we had created a high efficiency POE, and the reason why we had done that, I put them on a 68 from a 320. And it was a very low miscible POE. So even though this is an HFC, this was not very miscible with it. And to answer something that you brought up, the adage that's out there that POEs are 100% miscible with HFCs is wrong. They're not. They, they range anywhere from 5% to 100% miscible. So you can have a POE with an HFC that works very similar to R22 and mineral or ammonia and mineral where it's more compressor dedicated and it's not wanting to stick to the refrigerant, not being polar and going downstream and you're fighting a lot of return or drain off on the low side. And there's a lot of R507 flooded floor applications where they have, we'll call either premium separation or super separation where they work very hard to keep any of the POE to go downstream. And if we have a less miscible POE, and it stays more compressor dedicated, and, and then you're, you're just not really having that same problem to go uh, to fight that oil return or drain out from the downstream area. So it, now, because of this application, so we, we got it all cleaned out. And I'm telling you, man, the high-stage compressors on here, your two high-stage, two low-stage individual trains, and uh, plugging up every 30 hours, completely plugging up the filters. So the first stage was cleaning the system out. And so we use a very highly soluble POE, and POEs are natural scrubbers, just like HFCs are. They're natural scrubbers. You can start, start cleaning out a system. Unplugged all their small lines, all the valve groups, got everything cleaned out. But the last piece of the puzzle was, because we weren't sure how the system was going to react and how they modified the system, was how well it was going to work in their type of flooded evaporators. So that's when we started doing testing. We built a miscibility rig on our own. You know, we researched all the ASHRAE papers, the Purdue papers. You know, they were dated late 90s, early 2000s. Nothing had been tested really in miscibility since then. Uh, we were on the phone with the chemical engineers of the refrigerant in the U.K., the ones here in the U.S. And it's funny. These chemical engineers were saying the same thing. Hey, we 100% miscible HFC. be a problem. Nobody's done any testing. So we did it in-house. And, and, and that's when we started finding out that you can have, you know, virtually no miscibility to 100% miscibility. And we developed a new formulation that we're, we, we've together specifically for chillers, flooded coils, uh, or uh, systems that only have low-side skinners. 
So now, instead of just looking at the refrigerant and what the refrigerant manufacturer may say is the type of lubricant to go with it, we'll look at the compressor spec. We'll look at how well their separation is, and then we'll look at where they're used to collecting their oil from. And now we can say, okay, if it's a you know siphon skimmer, top, middle, low, you know if it's 20, 20 R22 drop in, you can keep mineral or alkyl benzene, or use a low miscible PoE because you can pull it off the middle of the top. Or if it's simply an archaic design that's not very good and it's only bottom pull, we can make it towards much more miscible, and they can use that type of return. And the only thing that remains, because and you were getting to it a little bit earlier, Cameron, is if it's so miscible with the PoE and it's becoming so homogenous, so you're not going to see foaming in the separator sonic glasses, you're not going to see anywhere else because it's going to be homogenous fluid. But if you don't have good separation, you're going to be pretty much probably losing a good bit of that oil downstream, or you're going to have to keep adding until you get to an equilibrium. And that's livable, and these guys are with it because, you know, you're going to have the refrigerant's going to boil offline. You're going to get the refrigerating effect, but you're going to have a system that's going to be much more saturated with oil than you would ideally like. So it's going to become a mechanical issue, really, to keep that oil in the compressor because that's the only job function lubricants really have is lubricate the rotating equipment. Um, but to keep it there and not lose it, but you can get a better equilibrium. It, one way or another will happen. But now we know how to make sure they, you know, they can find out lubrication, we get lubricant return, they can get temperature, they can get capacity, and they can go through their high seasons without having any, you know, pulling their hair out and busting their knuckles on their equipment. So you're, you're, you're basically saying that they may take an energy penalty because of the additional oil that they have, but in the end they're able to at least run the system, <laughs> which I guess is a, a bonus. Well, in this particular case, uh, their, their COP, their coefficient of performance, as well as their cost of system performance will actually continue to improve because there will become an equilibrium instead of a fight. Right. Exactly. So they never had, they never had equilibrium before. You know, they used the R22 with that particular POE. It was just, I mean, they went through 20 years of just never getting right. They did the change out. They went through another... Uh, a couple of years of never getting right. Now, since I visited the plant in August 2018, they're the best they've ever been. Uh, we made the product for them. As a matter of fact, Farmosa Products was actually the first person to actually go to our our new formulation for their chiller, and they've been happy. Uh, and we've done other tests, but now we've got you know this new formulation for for Occidental Chemical Corporation. And, I mean, they're the happiest they've been in a long time. It's just going to get better. And they're currently doing some they're, they're whatever testing they want to do. But, you know, the big story here is is that now, as a lubricant company, and, you know, we're very specialty. We're not, you know, mainstream. We're not commodity. We're all very specialty. And a lot of us are engineers or mechanics prior to this. And, and now we're real function, form, and in-situ situations recognizing the entire refrigeration circuit instead of only focusing on the compressor because, you know, people can just keep adding oil every month and keep that compressor rotating. Repressors, compressors are pretty robust. They can take a hell of a beating, and they will outlive the manufacturer warranty very easily. Anybody who's rebuilt a compressor knows that if you get a new one and it works past the 60-day mark, you're not going to have a manufacturer defect. 
it's just it's an outlived factory warranty. You know what I mean? Yep. I mean so, that's that's a pretty good assumption because you know all the working components are working unless somebody goes and screws something up. Hey Rick, this is Ulysses. Um, hey, have, y'all, have y'all done any testing with the train 3D scrolls? I was, I've ran so, into an issue with uh, people converting them to um, R422B, and mm-hmm. it seems like the top bearing on the compressor doesn't get any oil. And I've, we've had to replace several <laughs> due to uh, them pulling lock rotor amps after a couple of months. Yeah, so R422B to me, it's not been very popular because of the, the R600 part of it, you know, higher flammability. Uh, however, you can get pretty good low temperature, right? So, um, and they usually mess people up because, again, that's another one. We're using mineral, alka-benzene, or polyester. Now, a lot of scrolls in the smaller horsepower segment, uh, more so on air conditioning, you know, they, they can run either or. It really can depend on the refrigerant. However, you're going to have, uh, because you have a hydrocarbon filament with the propane, you can have more of a miscibility or a bonding with the mineral oil. And in the POE, it, it may create a little bit of a difference. So it's, it, I would have to look at a overall system, you know, a system overview to see, okay, again, depressor separation, oil return, refrigerant, overall temperature range. And and we've had a couple, maybe not with R422B, but something similar in Alabama where we've had to, I've had to completely change the system spec. You know, they'll have a compressor spec and everybody will just go with that. And sometimes they won't even look at what they, what they actually applied that compressor to and how they're using it. And you may have to modify your, your oil spec. Or someone at some point in time did a system spec to supersede the compressor spec, but they were just way wrong. And it could just simply be, all right, let's let's take a look at what kind of miscibility or solubility that we're looking at. And it could very well be something is just going up a couple of viscosity grades or using something that we know would be less polar with the components in the R422B. So if you're not getting top bearing lubrication, it, you know, when I don't know what they're using right now. Um, and if it is a POE, there's pretty vast differences in, in, in the POEs. And a lot of what's in the market, they're low VI. So you get your compressor VI for capacity. We have a lubricant VI, which is viscosity index. And if it is a POE, a lot of the POEs that are being put on the main market are very low viscosity index. Uh, 100 is kind of ideal for viscosity index, and what that index tells us is how rapidly the fluid changes in viscosity in relation to temperature. So if you have a rapid change in viscosity temperature, so this oil is heating up, and it's becoming super thin just by the temperature, and then it has a high miscibility with the refrigerant, it's becoming even thinner, then you may just not be getting, you know, it may not that it's not starving for the oil, it's just that what it's getting is too much refrigerant, not enough oil, really, on, onto the bearings, and, and just not having any type of wetting, lubricating, wedge, hydrodynamic lubrication happening. I think it's mostly mineral oil, so that's why they're using the R422B instead of just R22. So, you, so they are using mineral oil? <clears throat> yes, I believe so, for most cases so, that I've so, come across. 
Okay, so again, and then we have to look at, okay, is it the naphthenic or is it the paraphenic mineral oil that they're using? And then is it conventionally refined, hydro-treated, or hydro-cracked? And that's going to tell us if, so if it's conventional, you usually have 70, 85% of the stuff is taken out of it. However, they use a solvent refining process in conventional, and you can have trace solvents in there causing a problem with the refrigerant, just not having a good chemical reaction, or it's creating another bond in, in some of these chains because you're going to have these hydrocarbon bonds and how polar are they to each other. And then you're going to have a volatile molecular structure that's going to have nooks and crannies of molecules for things to not necessarily bind to but get stuck in. Um, and then the same thing there. You can have, like, Natphenic. Natphenic has a roughly about a 12 on the viscosity index scale. Or, again, like I said, we like to see that 100 or a little bit better in relation to temperature and then of course correlates to what kind of you know dilution factor might happen. So I mean this is something where this could be a, a case scenario for us where we work together, we get a little bit more information on the system, see what's happening, take a look at what they're using, get the specs on what they're using and see if those specs are in fact hindering inter, you know the interaction between the lubricant and the gas and then hindering the lubricating qualities for this uh, compressor. And scrolls are a little tricky sometimes, too. But most of the scroll stuff that I work with, you know, they're, they're definitely the rebuilders. Like, we have one main scroll rebuilder in the United States, and that's Arco out of Tennessee. And they stick with PLE. Uh, we, we pretty much just stick with whatever comes in the compressor. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, when we get a hermetic compressor from a manufacturer, I mean, we're not typically going out there and and changing that oil out and and i would venture to guess that 99 percent of the other people in the industry that go and get a replacement compressor from a manufacturer are not versed enough in the lubrication topic to even know to replace it or to do something different i mean i i, I feel pretty confident that we're all taking uh you know we all don't have enough information to do anything other than put a replacement compressor in that has whatever oil it comes with and, you know, put a refrigerant in it and hope for the best and, and for lack of a better term. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, uh, like close to you guys, you're mainly the Houston area, coastal hermetics, Houston hermetics. Um, um, oh gosh, I'm going to blank here, but there's a handful of hermetic rebuilders around the Houston area, and then the one that was in Dallas, Fort Worth area, and San Antonio just got picked up by Houston Hermetics. Uh, all those guys use us. Uh, and they could become a good resource for you guys, you know, if you want to reach out to and just kind of maybe ask about that particular compressor. Now, these guys are going to be more on maybe a little bit larger side, not so much on the scroll side. However, like I said, that company, Arco, out of Tennessee, could be a pretty good resource on it. What's the horsepower of this scroll compressor? Uh, I think that chiller. I think they're twenty horsepower compressors. Twenty horsepower. Okay, so so those guys might those guys might have it right there in Houston. Have a pretty good bit of information for you. We've only ever really ran across it with a train scroll, a train three D scroll. All the other scrolls seem to be fairly uh, resilient to uh, to whatever you're using in them. But the train three D scroll, for whatever reason, with that combination of mineral oil and 422B just seems to, and it, I think it's known, and there's a there's a train bulletin that goes over it, but I think, like you're saying, it just gets 
thinned out by the time it gets to the top and then you lacking lubrication on that top bearing and you end up with a failure. Um, but I wanted to go back to what you were saying. I, actually, I just wanted to kind of circle all the way back. And can you describe to us how when we go into a supply house and we pick up a normal mineral oil or even some of the POE oils, how do those differ than a product that we would get from ISIL as far as the way that they're manufactured and, and things of that nature? Okay. So most of the supply house stuff is going to be almost on the commodity market. You're going to get conventional oil uh, and you're going to, or maybe hydro treated. All hydro treating does is they try to uh, encapsulate the volatile molecular parts of their structure so that they don't become like a catalyst, but that wears off pretty quick. The biggest thing that I can tell you is that when our mineral, everything I do that pertains to mineral is a two-stage hydrocrack, 99.9% pure linear chain molecular form mineral oil. And we prefer uh, the two-stage hydrocrack paraffinic that either comes out of the Baltic Sea or some of the quality stuff that comes out of the Gulf uh, to meet our standards. And usually when I say paraffinic, people cringe because the first thing you want to think of is wax. When you're two-stage hydrocracking, and, that's, and, and this is a no solvent ex- extractors are used. It's atmospheric and vacuum distillation. Uh, it's a it's a de-waxing. And they use high-pressure hydrogen to literally destroy the molecular form. They do that twice. And then they put together that strength chain linear, linear form. So, again, you have no weak aromatics. You ain't nothing that's going to flash off, burn off, create varnish, create sludge, break down in itself. So that's very pure. Uh, it also it's also qualified food grade base stock. I, I, so I don't I don't use any low grade mineral, no mid grade mineral, mineral anything that we do in the mineral side is two stage hydrocrack. Uh, so that does a lot of good things there. We have a better understanding of miscibility and solubility. Um, it's completely inert with any type of elastomeric material. Uh, it's excellent lubricity. It's excellent water separation. The the moldability on that stock is immediate and then you know uh, we bring in all the raw materials to include the raw components for additives and we do all the blending and all the component stuff here so we have advanced proprietary additive packages that blend extremely well with two-stage hydrocrack so we can create a better end result performing product uh, that's going to cost less than, than, than the synthetics and in most cases, they're going to cost less than the low-grade minerals because they're marketed so high, they're very expensive. Um, that's going to be a big thing there. Same thing with the POEs. We use very high VIPs. So I said earlier, a lot of them on the market, like the Celestes and the M-Karates and stuff like that, they got a VI usually between 90 and 100. Uh, some of the products or the variations I put out a VI up in the 190s. So higher VI, higher resistance to viscosity change in relation to temperature, which means once we heat it and thin it, it's it's not thinning so much. And then you have the refrigerant dilution that may not happen depending on the application. Again, it's not being thin that much. You have a better working, lubricating, protecting film on the internal parts. Plus, man, I don't know too many companies. It's very hard to find it. Most POEs on the market that you buy, from the supply storehouses or coming from a train or York or carrier, they're based on, they're straight based on PLE. They're not additized. Ours are all rust and corrosion inhibitors, optimized to foamers. 
um, friction modifiers, and I'm not talking zinc. We don't do any of that old school stuff. We use much more advanced technology uh, friction modifiers that don't deplete as quickly either because additives do deplete. Uh, ours tend to work much longer. So everything is fully formulated, and everything is a premium. I don't have, like I said, I don't have low grade, mid grade, best grade. Our goal is always whatever we're putting out to put out into the best performing part uh, in the market. Uh, the other thing is, is since we're the manufacturer, you know, you're going to have your direct pricing, which obviously is going to make a big benefit. And then of course you have the option. Well, it's more the salesy side, I guess, but your direct cost benefit, and of course your label on whatever you're leaving behind. And for me. Labeling to me wasn't a, a big sales point rather than it was a safety factor because hopefully if you're leaving some container of oil behind on your job site or with your customer, there's that peripheral of name, number, contact. So before any unskilled hands touch something they shouldn't touch, maybe that peripheral will help stop them. So, you know, what? we better call these guys before we mess with this. To me, that uh, being, you know, being, I, mean, I used to contract for the naval government and work on ships. Yeah, I didn't want anybody touching something they didn't have to because that could mean you know, the difference in someone living or dying. So that was, you know, I call it a calling card, call it branding, call it whatever. I call it a buffer factor to make sure that the people that are supposed to be touching it touch it. And then, unfortunately, sometimes if you guys have a PM and somebody messes something but they don't confess it, they just bleed out your PM, your profitability, and your time that you could be doing something else. So um, that's the big difference is there. And then the other thing I can tell you is I'm not, you know, I don't know everything. And I learn every single day. But I tell you one thing I have learned, I haven't seen any other lubrication company step and foot into the operator training classes, the technician classes, the rebuild shops, uh, these huge system issues, and really find out what the root cause is and trying to get stuff back on track and actually caring about more than just, well, here's my, you know, here's my oil cell. And I got this one. Uh, you know, our, our goal is, you know, customers for life, users for life. And if something doesn't work right, we don't care about where the finger's being pointed. We care about everybody working together to get it right. And, and, and do it quickly. Um, the other side is is you got a Frankenstein system or a weird case. Well, I got a full R and D lab and everything here. I can modify any formulation. I can create a new formulation. I can do whatever as quickly as a two week turnaround. And that's nobody. I'll be honest with you. There, there's nobody in the market that can do that. So quickly, I, I know that that word solutions is being really played out these days. But really, it's the quickest route to a solution, to a problem, to get done and over with and, and, and move on. Yeah, so you guys have the the everyday product line, which we can go, uh, being a distributor, we can go online and we can access the products that we use all the time and we can order them and have them direct sh- uh, shipped to us or to the customer location in the case of, you know, 55-gallon yep. drums or uh, when, we're, when we're purchasing oil in that quantity, we just have it normally shipped directly to the site. Uh, and that is pretty awesome process. And then what you're saying is that if you have a use case scenario that is outside of those normal parameters, then you guys can come on site, help out, engineer a product custom to that system yep. that will help it run better. Seems pretty yeah, good Yeah, and it's a real simple process. Yeah, man, usually this is how it works. Someone gives me a call, and I jump around the phone with you know a quick conference call, whether it be with the plant manager, plant engineer, FSM, owner, president, whatever title they want to have, 
and we just started getting to the meat of it and started figuring it out. And that's because, you know, I still around almost 30 years now, and that's the core of what this company's been doing. So there's already a hell of a database of products that are already available or are just kind of sleeping until they're needed again, or they're, or they're just being used for this one-off here or that one-off there. But a lot of times I already have something that's almost an exact fit or 70, 80, 90% of what we need. Yeah, I see that you guys have a pretty extensive list on the website. Uh, actually, I hadn't seen that before. I, I don't know where I was at, but if you go on to isolinc.com and look up uh, ISIL Lubricant Finder, you can uh, punch in your industry and the manufacturer that you're currently using and bring up the ISIL equivalent or you know what you would you want to replace that with, I guess I would say. Um, but that there's a pretty uh-huh. extensive list there and I can't think of anything that you guys haven't put in this list um, that people couldn't be able to find uh, an oil that's compatible with whatever they're running. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a pretty option, but it's not even a half of it, man. The list on the website is probably about a tenth or twelfth of the actual lubricants on the market and then, of course, what we have in crosses. Have you heard, um, there's a myth, I don't know if it's a myth or not, going around in the HVACR industry. If you pull a vacuum too low on a system, um, the oil will degas and the oil will not lubricate properly. Well, so if you pull a vacuum, it will degas in the fact that you'll pull the refrigerant out of it. And that's typically what they'll do uh, for refrigerant oil samples or use oil analysis. The right lab should pull a vacuum on it, get the refrigerant out of it, and then test the oil undiluted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would imagine, yeah, that could possibly happen. Now, there's no real gas in an oil unless you heat it. Um, you know, the, the, the flash point on mineral oils are anywhere from 340 to 480 degrees F. Uh, the minerals are going to be slightly different. I don't know what degassing of oil they're talking about, like in for the actual lubricant. There was some literature that went around uh, from vacuum pump manufacturers that uh, basically were uh, suggesting that you don't pull too deep of a vacuum on a system, not necessarily even a system that had been prior um, operated and had a refrigerant in it, just a, a even just a typical new installation that had vacuum or excuse me that had oil. Uh, just in a compressor, and they were um, kind of suggesting that you could break down the oil uh, into a different you know, compound or that you could somehow change the relationship okay. of the oil to where it wouldn't lubricate anymore or have those yeah. lubricating properties. So, so in the vacuum pump world, uh, you have to be very careful what you use because there's a torque pressure rating. For, for oils, and they have to match up with whatever type of vacuum you're going to be pulling within a vacuum pump. Uh, so I do a lot of vacuum tubing, vacuum cooling, uh, and we can pull, depending on the application, either from our vacuum pump line, or I actually have a dedicated chill vac product uh, that we use with a, a, a process cooling corporation, I think it is, who makes a lot of chillers and designs. Um so, yeah, if you pull too much of a vacuum on the oil, yes, you can cause a couple of different things to happen. You literally can pull apart the molecular structure. 
And if it's a TOE, when you separate the fatty acids and the alcohols that were that were used in the manufacturing product to make the POE lubricant, once you separate its components, it's no longer a lubricant. Uh, in the oil, you're literally, in mineral oil, you're just literally pulling it apart. So yeah, you do need to be careful how much of uh, a vacuum put on that. Now, that's also another issue for the vacuum pump line that they're not letting people know because most of the oils in the vacuum pump world are you know the JD Gold and the Fuller products and the Fuller uh, Fuller or FLD FLD Smith. They're using semi partial and semi synthetic formulations, which when they say partial and semi synthetic, it's still just all mineral oil. It's just they're, they're taking that different stage in refinement, and 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 the American Petroleum Institute and many of the organizations out there. You can call a mineral oil a mineral, a partial, a semi, or full synthetic, depending on what type of refinement it's gone to. Like the two-stage hydrocrack paraffinic that I use, it comes from paraffinic crude. So you could call it a mineral, but it's considered a synthetic hydrocarbon hydrocarbon uh, uh, by the American Petroleum Institute. And that's what uh, Castrol won their suit against Mobile against uh, many years ago. Because Mobile said, oh, you can't call it a synthetic, and Castrol said, yes, we can as a matter of fact, uh, the, uh, the the donut seal of approval, if you will, the rigorous testings that automotive oils have to go through, they test the same as the full-on synthetics as far as actual rating. Uh, that's a little interesting tidbit for you there. There's an SN rating for automotive oils, and I think it goes up to a 10. Most of these high-dollar mobile ones and super synthetics you know, they get like a 9.4, 9.6 or something like that. And you go and look at something that's that's modern-day conventional, which is made a lot better than it used to be, and it's like two decimal points off. <laughs> so why spend 10 times as much money for the motor oil when it literally almost ranked the same? You just made a lot of people so, cry. <laughs> yeah, man. So, how how, how it, low it, do you think of a, a – do you have any idea? I mean, we're, you were talking tour ratings, so but do you have any idea – Obviously, here uh, we mostly refer to our mic- or our vacuum levels at a micron level. Do you have any idea how low you would have to pull a vacuum on the system to actually cause any kind of fracturing of the oil like you're talking about? Uh, off the top of my head, no, uh, but I have that resource here. Uh, I can tell you this. The higher quality base stock, the base stock, the higher tour rating it has. So if I were to, you know, give you guys a mineral oil to use for your vacuum pump for, uh, or your pumped out carts, uh, for one, it lasts a whole lot longer on the cart. And as I were, if they were to use that oil in the system, it would be less likely to uh, uh, succumb under that type of vacuum. Because I don't think typically you're not going to be pulling that hard of a vacuum. Again, if it's a low quality, not thinic or conventionally refined oil that's in there, or it's a low-quality POE where some companies are using plant and animal fats, triglycerides. They're not fortifying the oil. Uh, they're, they're, it's not going through a great manufacturing process, and the system has a high content of water that's not being managed, and the POE is already going through hydrolysis. You're going to pull it apart because it's already pulling apart anyway. So, so there's just a, a lot more variables there. Then it's not, it's not as black and white as saying yeah, yeah it yeah. is or it isn't. I mean, we have a lot more variables yeah, that we may yeah. not even be able to measure. 
Yeah, so it's kind of like, here's another way I like to relate it. So, I mean, I have a Victory motorcycle, and Victory specs to run 93 octane. Now, one of my best friends was an ambassador to Victory, and he has his own shop, and he's, he's, he's very well-renowned for his motorcycling prowess. And that 93 octane spec is for the worst-case conditions. It's for the idiot that rides in Arizona where the air is thin, you have, uh, you know, the, the humidity is different, altitudes are different, and so they'll spec the octane rating where they say optimal performance at this, but really what it's for is to make sure they don't have engine problems in the worst-case scenario and performance problems. So here in Florida, I can run 87 and be just fine. Now, the way that my bike set up, I have found that it loves 89. You know, that's just a, an owner-operator you know, then you, know, you do due diligence and see what, what it likes. And it also likes name brand gas rather than cheap gas, which I think every automobile prefers name brand rather than cheap. Um, so it, it, a lot of these specs that are out there and a lot of these guys are going to put out there kind of like a CYOA worst case scenario, you know, you, you've got a massively strong vacuum pump. You have, um, it hooked up to maybe a small system and it's using crappy oil. And not only that, it's gone and it's oil that hasn't been changed and it's too many chemical reactions with the refrigerant, with the metals, with the water, with the air, and you got a crappy oil that you're just going to pull a horn vacuum on and you're just going to destroy it. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think that's the part that people want to make it, like I was saying, they want to make it black or white and I've probably been, um, you know, somebody that's done that too, but it sounds like that there's just some other, uh, other issues that kind of, I guess, factor into that as well. Besides just, uh, you know, using high quality lubricant, high quality system, good install. I, I think you wouldn't run into these problems. I mean, obviously we're not running into the problems cause we're doing it, but there, I think yeah. it's just a theoretical, you could in theory do this, but I don't know that in practice that we're actually pulling a vacuum low enough to be able to cause that kind of a damage to a quality oil. No, no, you're, I mean, it, there's a lot of variables to it and, 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 I, and it doesn't mean you have to have ideal situation. Now this is going to tie into another part about going in with PUE. So I said earlier, PUE is a natural cleaner scrubber. So is the HSC. The big thing that scares people with POE is water, right? Yeah. So, and a lot of OEMs in a lot of places will scare the crap out of people with POE, especially other companies that sell POE. Uh, high water, it's bad. It's got to come a certain way. It's got to come with a certain water content guarantee or rating. Um, uh, you have to use a Virginia KMP or new Calgon water test kit, acid test kit that changes color. That's all BS. All BS. First off, those guys are only selling a straight base stock POE. They don't have additives in there. And additives are going to have different acid ratings and they're going to have different refract ratings and different colors. So you can't use a simple color change kit that's being supplied by the same person that's trying to sell you the oil. And it seems to always look great on their oil, but nobody else's. <laughs> the other thing is POE does absorb more water, but that is in contrast to mineral. It has a higher affinity for water than mineral does. does not mean that it's the end-all condemning point. Um, we've done many tests here. I'll just leave POE open in the warehouse for a couple months, 
will wait until it can't absorb any more water, which is usually around 900 parts per million, does not affect the PA whatsoever. The reason being is, another difference with us, we look for highly molecularly stable PoE and highly hydrolytically stable PoE where the water doesn't cause it to go through the hydrolysis and break apart. And then people have to remember the HFC has a higher affinity for water than the PoE, and then you put these uh, you know, scrubbers in the system or the filter dryers in the system. So the way it works is the HFC is going to pull the water from the PoE, and the filter dryers are going to pull, pull, uh, pull the water from uh, the HFC and, and the PoE. So essentially, you're not going to have that type of water content in your oil. However, if you got a weak molecular chain, bad molecularly stable PoE, then it starts to break down. If you have one that's got good stability, then it doesn't. And then, you know, if you use, you get a five-gallon pail of PoE, you get a gallon thing of PoE, and you only put half of it in there, you don't have to throw it away right away. You, you can cap it back off as best you can. But instead of using a water or, I mean, a, a color-changing acid kit, get an actual tan kit, total acid number kit. Um, there's a couple of companies out there that sell really good ones. They're completely unbiased. It's just a, just a kit to use. They don't actually give you a number rating on the tan. And then you have an actual quantifiable number, whether or not it's condemned by acid or not. So don't it's, uh, use it's, it's cheap another... POE. Yeah, don't use cheap POE. Uh, but the big thing is, is you're going to test POE, it, though. test it, <laughs> yeah, but, but <laughs> test it with, uh, uh, you know, test it with something that's going to give you a quantifiable number and say, oh, if it's yellow, it's got to go. Because there's actually uh, some high-exist POEs that depending on the fatty acid that they use in the manufacturing process, it's going to already have a yellowish tinge to it. Y'all do oil analysis? Oh, in yeah, house? yeah, yeah. Actually... Yeah, so I have an in-house lab that I can do the full analysis with. And we're, in, in the past few years, we partnered with Polaris Laboratories for a couple of reasons. One, we just have so many that we do for so many different industries. We need to speed up the process. Uh, but they also let us um, build and influence the actual refrigeration section of their uh, oil analysis. So there's much better statistical information. There's much better overall information. And they're... Their analysis processes are are pretty top notch, so we get pretty adequate information. So yeah, and it's complementary on our oil, uh, and I even do a complementary usually on competitive oil when we know we're just trying to get a, a, either a new baseline or we want to get the before oil analysis and then we want to get the after oil analysis after we switch them out. Um, really, not to the very liberal program, if you will. Yeah, we've used them uh, and, uh, pretty successfully, and they send out the kits and never had any questions asked. You know, they send it out, and we fill them up, send them back, and then they give us the results. Uh, it's a pretty seamless process. So now what I'll do here to expand upon that is here at the lab, we like to do more of the abnormality stuff. So if you got a plug, filter, or strainer, you can send it to me, and I can take a look at what's in there and maybe what the composition is to try to get a better idea. If the compressor is going through bearings left and right, and nobody can figure it out or dial, or uh, uh, um, seals. Uh, you can send those in. We can do the metal analysis. We can look at pitting, spalding, fragmenting, welding, 
all these different things to figure out what might be happening. Um, you know, I can look at, you know, we can put together a, a Dropbox full of photos and you can help evaluate those. Um, I do a lot of that stuff kind of here. So we can get you know, more of a root cause analysis and deeper uh, foreign contaminant analysis that usually helps try to pinpoint more what the problem is. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and have you talk about the armor gel because I know that that's a a pretty cool product. And if you have a little bit more time, I would love to hit on that. Sure. Sure. 2011, a lot of our friends in the refrigeration industry came to us saying they're using a blue goop type product to try to help with uh, uh, protecting pipes and mitigating corrosion insulation. And they had some qualms with it. Uh, it wasn't safe. It was expensive. It was, you know, couldn't get on your skin. If you're on the clothes, you were throwing your clothes away. A lot of people were ruining their home washers and the rest of the laundry. Uh, then it started requiring a solvent, and then it started requiring another wrap before you put the insulation on. And then there was issues with permeating insulations and delaminating vapor barriers and lots of stuff out there. Now, the product works to an extent, and, and overall, it seemed to have been a better option than constantly, you know, ripping off epoxies and paints and shutting down systems and isolating things and very labor intensive and expensive shutdowns. So anyway, they came to us and said, Hey, this is blue goo. Do, you know, we know isolate stuff. Can you guys make something similar? So, uh, and I think 2012, early 2013, a couple of prototypes went out and went to a couple of juicing plants and some other plants and really good feedback. And so we decided it came out as our pipe coating gel. Now it's our Arma gel. It's been uh, patented as this year. Uh, it's a great alternative to that, to the epoxy coatings, to the paintings, to the primers, corrosion control tapes, things like that. And it is, it, it, it hit every subject. We made sure it was not going to hurt your skin, didn't stain your clothing, wasn't expensive. It's also food grade, non-toxic, so PSM people love that. Um, uh, it doesn't require a solvent cleaner if some spills on an uninsulated surface or unintended surface. It doesn't require a wrap to put on it before you put on your insulation media. Uh, we've tested everything we can get our hands on with it. So no permeation, no impregnation or anything like that. Um, the application can be however you want. Uh, we recommend you know putting it on with your hands. You put some gloves on because milling it onto a surface helps push out voids the whole purpose is to make sure air and water doesn't get to the pipe so it can't propagate rust so if you leave voids in there you're leaving air and water um and you know, we have a couple different versions uh, we have the yellow dyed yellow one that everyone's pretty familiar with um, this year we came out with an enhanced version that's hulk green so it's much more uh, visible, especially if you're putting on varnish-coated or primer pipe that's black and you're in the sunlight and you want to make sure you, it's not too transparent. Um, but And the cool thing is is it's completely compatible with all the stuff I mentioned before. It's compatible with the blue goo. It's compatible with the paints and the epoxies. There's no incompatibilities with anything. Um, so it can simply be used. And it's the idea is, and I did a summit for BP a couple of years ago on this because we have a high-temp side too. The, uh, you know, the idea is, is, is you're beginning and you're adding another layer. So as you're applying it, it's your first layer of defense. As everything's applied, it's your last layer of defense. And, and what it's designed to do is just keep air and water from fighting for space and not propagating rust and help control corrosion under insulation. 
And a lot of plants are, are definitely going to start. They're, if they're, you know, got to redo some insulation because it's been inspected and failed, you know, if they're wanting to put gel on it first, pipe gel, pipe coating gel before they insulate. If it's a new install, they're using carbon piping. Uh, they're doing it. Uh, I got a good number of mechanical firms that it's been mandatory spec with their thermal division or their piping division. Uh, we've got a lot of insulation contractors that are really liking it. It's very easy to apply. And the cool thing is, it's pliable. Now, we test it down to negative 100 degrees, and we can still easily apply it. Well, we rate it, we put it on the spec sheet, from negative 75 to 400 degrees. So it's a couple of products that works on a broad range of um, piping. It's very easy to apply. You don't, If it gets cold, it doesn't become a putty. It doesn't become very hard. It still applies very easily. Um, the best thing for all the products mentioned above is on bare pipe, but I know a lot of pipe will come painted or primered. So the way that we've formulated the products is if it goes over painted or primered pipe, once through expansion and contraction, some micro breaches start happening and that paint and primer separates or whatever. Once that bare metal is exposed, this stuff has metal binding agents in it, so it's going to attach to that bare metal. And it's going to work its way a little bit underneath that 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 surrounding edge or lip of that primer or, or epoxy or, or paint that's on there and keep trying to get to that metal. So it's a really cool type of product. You have kind of that self-healing effect to it. And then it doesn't, we tested it up to 400 degrees for non-drip. So if you guys are doing big vessels or large vertical piping or anything like that, it's not going to sit there and just pull down and fall on you. It's going to just stick to that piping. What, surface what's the is there a, a use case for um already or pipe that already has oxidation or corrosion or rust whatever you want to call it is there a, yep. a preparation yep. for it or is it just push it put it on and stop whatever's happening or so that's that the uh so i was just here to get to that so if, it, if, if you still have enough structural integrity left with the pipe and it's been checked and you're there and it's got some rust and some stuff on there you, you're going to use your preferred method to remove that layer of rust. And I'm not saying you don't have to get to like shiny bare pipe, but you want to get the majority of it off. And then really what I say is, is a rag or a method where you're wiping the dust off. So remove what you feel is a good bit of the existing rust, wipe off the dust, and then apply. Because what's going to happen then is you're going to freeze uh, the rust in time. You're going to no longer add air and water to catalyze rust and corrosion, and it's going to freeze it in time. Uh, Gamma Graphics uh, is loving the idea of this pipe gel, and they're and they're going to be putting it into um, their their recommendations for for piping and stuff that they check. Uh, same thing if it's got a bunch if it's frozen over or frosted over, use preferred method to melt off the ice, wipe off the moisture, put the pipe gel right on there, and, and get going. You you really don't even have to shut down or isolate the system because it's such a broad product and you're probably never going to get the negative 75 degree piping. You're going to be what, like from negative 10 to plus 10, somewhere around there. Yeah. Not without some engineering background there. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a surface prep for anything is very easy. So I got guys that put it on their King valves, put it on their compressor heads. If they're icing over on some of these cascade systems, I see that are running gear recepts. Uh, they're putting on their ammonia pumps. Uh, they're they're putting it on. You put it on subframes and feet and foundations and rooftop valve groups that aren't insulated or even 
bracketing anything they don't want to uh, to have rust. And the cool thing is, with like some of these pumps or valves that tend to ice over a lot, it severely retards the icing over or frosting, so there may be very little on there. But if it does happen to get to the point, for whatever reason, to build ice, the conditions are right, it's building ice on top of the gel, and it's never touching the metal, so you literally crack it off like an egg. I've heard this come from some of the guys in Kansas City. You just crack it off like an eggshell. Oh, um, really of, I'm going to try that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I got other guys that are rebuilding compressors and I had found out that they're using anti-seize to help set the compressor gaskets and seals. And, and, and of course that causes a free radical to get inside the system. It does not work very well as an interior component. They switched to using the pipe gel because when you have something that's made with synthetic hydrocarbon and it doesn't, uh, contaminate or have an adverse reaction with either the lubricant or the ammonia. Now, the, hopefully these guys aren't putting globs on there if you have a lot inside the compressor, but you know, a little bit on that seal or gasket can help hold it in place. I got guys using it for that. Like I said, penthouse valve groups that aren't insulated, got guys using it for that. So remember, it's a food-grade, non-toxic product that's also inherently biodegradable. So and it has a really good water washout resistance, too. So if anything that's kind of done open to nature, you check it once or twice a year. And if it needs to have a little bit more pride, you just, you know, they want to brush it on, they can, or they just want to put a little bit in their hands with a glove and smear it on there. Uh, it's fine. Uh, we did tests here. We grabbed piping. Uh, we ground off the ends. We applied with our bare fingers that we had the oils of our hands and everything on there and then we wiped it off with a rag and then we threw it outside here in jacksonville florida and i'm not too far as the crow flies from the atlantic ocean and we just left it out to mother nature for a couple of years and it has yet to rust if it can survive in florida it can survive anywhere i think <laughs> yeah and you know, we have that salt air we have all these varying degrees i mean it's it's a really, really good product. I've got uh, containers on my desk right now where we fill little oil sample containers of our stuff, the blue goo, and we just let it sit in the water. Something that I've noticed is that the blue goo is continuously becoming lighter and lighter and lighter in color. Also, water is getting behind it in between the cup and the blue goo. And there's stuff floating in the water that I can see with my naked eye. So it's going through composition changes while sitting in water. My stuff is all sitting beside each other, same amount of time. Absolutely no change to the color. Nothing's floating in the water. No water's gotten behind it. Uh, the composition of the change is the same uh, because we make it a fully saturated product. So it can't absorb any water or be affected by water. Sounds like that's the next uh, yeah. picture for the marketing material. Yeah, well, I'm thinking about putting together a presentation case. Um, I mean, we, we beat the crap out of our products just to see, look, if this wild-ass idea would happen, can we, can we, can, would we stand up to it? And cause you know how it is, man, it's a great U.S. of A. Litigation is so easy. And people can point fingers so easy. So we just try to like beat the crap out of it any which way we can think of to try to avoid that event. However, there's, you know, there's business and lingo 
and documentation in place to, you know, that little CYO that every company do, but we still try to create as much of a buffer as possible. Yeah. It goes back to what you were saying earlier, where you got to uh, design everything for the, the, the worst case that you don't even know about yet. Yeah. Worst case scenario. And, and here's something, you know, with the pipe gel, so many other entities, they're not really a whole lot of them, but they want to tell ASTM B117 uh, salt fog test pass or fail first off ASTM b117 is not a pass or fail test it is just literally the outline of the operational procedures on how to use a salt fog machine that's it uh, anything that happens with whatever you put in there is just up to your observation and assessment and you, you go for there it's just for temporary so there is no pass fail ASTM b117 so anyone that's out there saying that it has to pass ASTM b117 to be a viable product they don't know what the hell we're talking about um, uh, the, in that test, that, that test procedure and was designed for hard coatings like paints and epoxies, not for gels. So it's not even pertains to gels and it, and it doesn't even pertain to low temp piping. That's going to be covered by insulation media and several layers between, you know, the jacketing, the tape, the sealants, the vapor wraps. Um, and going back to vapor wraps, we've had several people, uh, other companies outside of ours test, uh, the insulation and the vapor wraps and we don't, we don't mitigate those. So that, that's a huge plus. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. I mean, uh, as soon as we're trying not to penetrate the vapor barrier and to begin with. So if you're, uh, uh, yeah. whatever you're putting on there is mitigating the effectiveness of the vapor barrier, then it doesn't really make a, a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah. I, when I first started doing this. You know, five-gallon pail, the Blue Goo contractors and distributors were paying almost $1,300 for and then had to, you know, mark it up. Um, I started selling mine at $480 a five-gallon pail. It's a whole lot less than $1,300. Uh, we have caused the market to become more competitive, which is good for everybody. But even still, I think I'm, I'm saving people 30 or 40% uh, gallon for gallon, and I have a safer, broader range, more applicable product. Uh, it's really a no-brainer, um, yeah, I, and I, I mean, I can't it, wait it, to it, check it's, it out. it's recognized by Owens Corning, so uh, that pretty much says it all there. Yeah, we we don't do a whole lot of uh, new construction in Texas, but in our California division, we do. And um, I, I just found out about it myself when we were talking last week, so I'm I'm definitely excited to get our hands on that and see if we can. Put that to the test. We will be your worst case scenario. I guarantee it. So maybe we can see it, exactly how it holds up. I mean, I've got tons of test cases that are out there. It's it is like I said, it's a no brainer. It's super super easy. It's more cost effective, and really for small to mid size refrigeration facilities, uh, cold storage facilities, um, it's it's something that they can actually afford now. Because they've wanted to go to something better than what they have, but other products have just been too far outside the budget. But yeah, if you guys are doing NDT testing, if you're coordinating with companies like Gamma Graphics, um, they will advocate for us and and to help with uh, you know a customer wanting to try it out. And then of course you guys can call me, text me, email me any point in time you want. Uh, since I don't sell to the end user, you can jump me on any conference call you want or web meeting or whatever. You know, I'll tell the, you know, they can hear it straight from the horse's mouth if they want. Anything I can do, you know, to help you guys out. Um, 
can you just tell everybody uh, how they can go about finding ISIL and get more information about you guys? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you've got uh, ISILinc.com is, is a great way to find out about us and get a good uh, look at the overall capabilities of the company, the products that are offered. Um, uh, it, myself, especially for you guys in the refrigeration network, you know, you, you have uh, you, my direct cell, so that's 904-527-9887. You guys can call, text, uh, rick.chabot at isolink.com. You can email me. Uh, the the Armored Gel has its own website, uh, so there should link from the isolink.com, but if, if they can go directly to the armorgel.com website, get information from there. Um, and it's it's one of those things here where, you, 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 we can't put every possible thing that's going to be available on the website, but really there's not much of anything that you could bring to us that we don't, or, you know, have already have something for, or can't fairly quickly figure, figure out something for. So more than happy to, to help out any which way I can. Well, I, I really appreciate your time. I know we went over a little bit, but I, I, I appreciate it. And I think everybody else will too. All right, guys. Take care. Great talking with you. I look forward to the future events. Oh, you're going to write it down. It's organic. We'd like to Raw? thank... Hmm? Raw? <laughs> Raw and uncut. <laughs> we just want to thank our listeners. Um, if you... If you really like this podcast, I'm sure you do. Please give us a like and subscribe and give us some good feedback. You know, we can improve. Bro, they don't like it on the podcast. Do what? You, you don't like you it on the like? podcast? No. Yeah, you can give us a five-star rating. That would be liking it. That would be loving it. Loving it. Yes, you love it. Want some more of it.